Please be seated. Let me invite your attention to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now Wednesday night I will continue this chapter in our WOW service beginning at 6 o'clock. And all the blessings we'll talk about today will uh, instruct on how to appropriate them next uh, Sunday. But this morning I want to address the subject, why worship at all? Why give God the Father worship at all? You know, fathers are unusual creatures in many ways, and uh, there are many that would uh, agree with that. It reminds me of the father of the dad who was very forgetful, and his family was moving, and his wife uh, instructed him the morning of their move not to forget that they were moving, so he would go to the right house after work uh, when he arrived home. Well, as it is, the family moved during the day. Everything was moved to the new home a few neighborhoods over. And he came home back to the old home and arrived and looked at the house and it was completely empty and he was shocked. And he turned around and looked at a little boy and said, Sunday, do you know where this family has gone? Uh, My family has moved and I've completely forgotten where they've gone. And the boy said, Dad, (laughs) Mom told us you would forget, so she sent me to come get you. Some of the challenges dads face and pose to families are of a more serious nature, though. I know of one pastor who told the story one time of his own father who divorced his mother when he was about six years old and didn't see his son for a couple of years and even would come to town but would not go by to visit with his son, though he went by to visit with his family. One occasion, he did come by and pick up his son and stayed with him for about a week at his grandparents' home and then took him home, and the son realized what was happening. And it dawned on him this was the last day and the last few moments that he would spend with his father and probably wouldn't be a number of years before he would see him again. And so the boy began to weep, and the father pulled over into a grocery store parking lot and without saying a word, tried to console him and then put the car in the drive, carried him home, and without saying a word, dropped him off. And that pastor said that that was the day when he began to convince himself that he was worthless and insignificant, that he was not important to the most important man in his life. And that followed him for a while, crushed him and broke his heart, because it was many years later that he saw his dad. This morning, I want to look at verses 3 through 6 and urge you to give God the Father worship He is worthy of. And for some of you, the definition of Father is something that creates some anxiety and conflict in your soul. Because for some of you, you've had a profoundly disappointing dad. For those of you that haven't, thank God, please be patient with us. But some of you do, one way or the other. And even those with fathers that have been model and exemplary, the truth is there's some sting there because every father fails at some point or another. But I want to be so bold as to say today, not only should you worship God the Father, but you should worship God precisely because He is a Father. He's the Father of fathers. Exalted and there is no one greater. Now as we read verses 3 through 6, I want you to know that this passage is part of a larger passage in Ephesians 1. In fact, beginning in verse 3, going down to verse 14, there's no punctuation in the Greek text. It is one long extended sentence. And there are several characteristics to the sentence uh, in verses 3 through 14. One, it is Trinitarian. 
That means it mentions the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verses 3 through 6, the Father. Verse 7 down to verse 12, the Son. And verse 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit. But then it is not only Trinitarian, but it is also about worship. Verse 3, blessed be the God. And then verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Then, at the end of verse 12, to the praise of His glorious grace. Then, at the end of verse 14, to the praise of His glorious grace. It's about worship, and so it is placed here for many reasons, one of which is to provoke large, uh, heartfelt, thrilling worship to the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then the text from verse 3 down to verse, actually verse 1 to verse 14, is intensely focused on Jesus Christ. In just 14 verses, there are at least 17 references, maybe more depending on how you interpret the pronouns, at least 17 references to Jesus Christ. There is more of Jesus in Paul's introduction than some preacher's 30-minute sermons. He is exalted and lifted up in worship in this passage because in this era and in this age, the Father and the Holy Spirit are intensely focused on exalting Jesus Christ. And thus the whole earth shall be. And I want to chase a rabbit for just a moment before we read the text and take off on that to say, it is not enough in this day or in any day, and it has never been enough, nor shall it ever be enough, to merely talk about and worship God and to trust God and to accept God. That's an okay start. But the Father and the Spirit want us to go on beyond that and to bless and exalt Jesus. We receive Jesus. We worship and exalt Jesus because the Father and Spirit do. Now, it's entirely appropriate, of course, according to verse 3 through 6, to exalt the Father, and that's what takes place here in this text. But if we exalt the Father, that means we cherish and we treasure what He cherishes and He treasures, and He cherishes and treasures the Lord Jesus Christ. We exalt Him. And so churches are to be a collection of Jesus' people. May not be politically correct. Of course, you've probably figured out by this time I really don't pay much attention to such things because the Father is intensely focused on Jesus. Verses 3 through 6, however, begin this passage by exalting the Father as worthy of worship. Beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing and heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the beloved. And amen. Now I want you to understand where we are and where this passage is in our present day. And I want to do that by covering what I call the biblical storyline. And what I'd like to do is summarize Genesis to Revelation and place us there. So for the next seven or eight hours, if you'd be patient with me, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to do that. Genesis 1 and 2 teach us that God the Father created the world as a kingdom for His Son, Jesus Christ. He wanted a place for Jesus to rule, and this earth is it. In Genesis 3, we find those that He dispatched to the earth 
to spread his image and to rule it committed treason and betrayed him by joining the kingdom of darkness. And that's what took place in Genesis 3. And as a result, the judge, who has a kingdom and a court sentence and laws and sentences, sentenced them to death. And because of our sins, we have been sentenced with the death penalty of heaven. And that is, we die, our bodies die, we die eternally in the flame. Then in Genesis chapter 4 to Malachi 4, to the end of the Old Testament, we find God unfolds His plan to restore the earth, to be a kingdom. We are sentenced to death. The fury of God is aroused against all human sin and evil and all the consequences of it. But God the Father was not satisfied with that. So He put together a plan beginning with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Israel, and through the kings and through the prophets to begin to restore the earth and all humans to exalt his son as king. And so this is his plan for the balance of the Old Testament to restore traitors and the kingdom. His plan kicked into high gear, into overdrive in the Gospels from Matthew 1 to John 21, where the Lord Jesus came and enticed the whole earth and all the cosmos to come to the kingdom by previewing the kingdom. If you want to know what the future looks like, it looks entirely like Jesus. The future kingdom will look just like him. And and, and that is, the evil that's present in the world will be as absent from the world one day as it was absent from Jesus Christ. And all the goodness of heaven and all the goodness of God will be as present and intense and as permanent in all the earth as it was in Jesus Christ. Jesus previewed all of that. And from Matthew 1 to John 21, he showed that. And then he paid the death penalty for sinners. He bled and died there. He was the propitiation for the sins of the church, and not ours only, but also those of the whole world. In other words, that death sentence leveled against the earth. With that, the Father permits substitutions, and Jesus volunteered for the mission. He was the only one worthy, and thank God he did. No sinner could pay for someone else's sins. Well, to get that good news to the earth, we move to the next stage. And that is the book of Acts through Revelation 5. And that includes where we are today. We are somewhere there around Revelation 5 as he's being worshipped and exalted. And that is, he has sent uh, ambassadors and planted embassies all over the earth. We call them churches and staff them with ambassadors, Christian witnesses like you and me, to declare this good news to the earth. And we say, your debt has been paid. The king has risen from the dead. He is now willing to make peace with you and cancel the death sentence against you if you will repent and believe the gospel. Well, that's the era that we are in now. And that is the era in which Ephesians chapter 1 was written. That was interjected into this earth. Ephesians 1, in fact, the New Testament to communicate that message. Well, one day he's going to evacuate these embassies and withdraw these terms of peace. He will withdraw the terms of peace and the offer will be open. It will no longer stand. There is a shelf life, an expiration date to the offer of peace with God. It's coming a day. And then he will evacuate his embassies. He will resurrect believers and transform them and thus they shall always be with the Lord. They will first meet the king in the air is what they'll do. And then he will come in with the next stage, and that's Revelation chapter 4 through 20, and he will impose the kingdom of Christ on the earth. He will launch an assault and war against all evil, is what he will do. 
Because what he's attempting to do is cleanse the earth of evil so it's a fit kingdom for his son. And then in Revelation 21 and 22, the king will restore the kingdom and eliminate all evil. And the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. And he shall reign forever and forever and forever. Never to be challenged. No coup, no alternative plan, but Jesus Christ will be Lord. And this is the plan of the Father. He is worthy of worship and praise. And that's why we're urging his worship today. Now, in that era, if we can go back one slide real quickly, in that era of the embassies and ambassadors from Acts to Revelation 5, that's where we are today. And this text here tells us precisely how the Father planned to make believers, the ambassadors and the sons and daughters of the king, to communicate the message to the world. So Paul urged praise of God the Father because of his work in salvation. And that's what we've just read here in verses 3 through 6. And so you can praise the Father when you learn of his meticulous effort and his careful um, compassion towards us in bringing us into his family. So what makes him praiseworthy? Well, there are several things that are in the text. And one is the Father chooses believers. The Father chooses to make us believers. It was His choice. Now, let me ask you something. What would you do if you had all power, you could do anything, no one would know, and no one could oppose you? Now, just imagine, what would a seven-year-old boy do with that kind of power? When I was seven, no one was looking, and a friend and I went into the kitchen to the cabinet and filled up bowls of sugar and climbed under the house and ate them. <laughs> Never done it since then. <laughs> what would you do if you could do anything that you desired, anything that you wanted, and not be caught, but you had all the power in the world, and no one would oppose you? Do you know that is precisely the stance and posture of God the Father? That is precisely his, his uh, posture. That's his position. That's his ability. That is his unmitigated, unhindered freedom. Because he is almighty, no one can oppose him. No one can legitimately challenge his authority. God does whatever he pleases in the earth and the seas and all the earth, according to Psalms 115, verse 3. And so in verse 4, here's what he decided to do. He chose us in Him, He chose believers in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him. There are several ways to describe this, this choosing and this choice. It, it is a free choice. In other words, there's nothing external compelling Him to make this choice. In other words, He was not under threat. He was not under obligation, in fact. It is a free choice. In other words, to choose to save to choose to save is a deliberate choice of God's own free volition. Now, do you understand what that means? That means God could have allowed us to die and drown in our sins, and he would have been perfectly justified to do so. God was not obligated to save at all. He chose instead to do what is said in verse number four. So it's a free choice. It's a conditional choice as well. He chose us in him. The condition that we're made right with God and made sons and daughters of God is that we come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
And so you've got to understand, not everyone is a child of God. Jesus taught in John chapter 8, especially verse 44, there are some that are children of the devil and there are some that are children of God. There are only two categories, and the only ones that are children of God are those that have repented and placed faith on the gospel of God's Son. And so it is a conditional choice. It is also a gracious choice. Did you notice when he did it? He did it before the foundation of the world. Before you and I ever had any opportunity to do anything right, anything virtuous, he had already decided to make us the children of God. In other words, do you understand? There was nothing about you that impressed God to make him your child or to offer you salvation. Because when he made this choice, you weren't in existence. You hadn't done anything. You had not done anything virtuous, religious, right, or pure at all. You were not even on the earth, and God chose anyway to offer you the gospel. And if you believe, to save you is what he's done. Charles Spurgeon said, it's a good thing, though, on the other hand, that God chose me before the foundation of the world because he sure wouldn't have chosen me after. How true. And so he did it before the foundation of the world, before we had the opportunity to make any attempt to impress him, to perform in a righteous way, to do anything good or anything virtuous, God chose to make believers his children. And then it's an exalted choice. Look what it says here in verse number four. He chose that we should be holy and without blame before him. Before him means there's a posture and a position and a standing before him. This is talking about the day we stand before him, and it's talking about now as we stand before the judge. It's not talking necessarily about our experience on earth. It's talking about our experience before him as we appear before him now. Now, this can be a difficult thing for some people to wrap their minds around because they base their standing before God in much the same way Americans base themselves, base their standing in other things. And that is, we, we like to do it the old-fashioned way. We like to earn what we get. I want to tell you, though, there's no earning the grace of God. It's too priceless. You don't have enough righteousness to get it on your own. And so Jesus shares his righteousness with you. And so God chose to bring you to himself, and by choosing you, here's what happens. The moment you give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, you instantly, you instantly are given the position of being holy and without blame before God. Now, do you understand that? Do you understand how revolutionary this is? The moment a believer repents and places faith in the gospel, at that moment, that person is given a holy and blameless standing before God. Now, after we come to Christ, do we live that way? Are we blameless from then on out? No, we struggle. But what God does is that even though our practice is far away from holiness and blamelessness, He goes ahead and gives us the position. In fact, He gives us the holiness and blamelessness of Jesus Christ and begins to love on the children of God with the same intensity and the same affection, with the same spirit of treasure and cherishing the children of God that He loves the Lord Jesus Christ with as well. Oh, what a standing is mine, said the hymn writer. 
And so when you come to Jesus Christ as Savior, your practice is full of struggle and full of tears and disappointment and personal failure. But your position before God is solid and secure because it's secured in Jesus Christ. And God the Father chose to make you pure and blameless before Him when you came to Jesus Christ as Savior. So you get the position long before your performance ever matches it. So when God had no, etern- uh, no external pr- pressure, when he had all the power, he deliberately chose to elevate the status of sinners through his son. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to save a wretch, a treasure. How great the pain of searing loss as the Father turns his face away. And wounds which marred the Holy One bring many sons to glory. That's what Jesus has done in his cross, and it's because the Father chose to do so. Make no mistake about it, he is worthy of worship and praise. But that's not all the Father does. He not only chooses believers, but there's a second thing, and that is the Father predestined believers. Before builders constructed this worship center, they had a plan given to them by architects. The same is true for the office area in Building B, where our preschoolers and children and fellowship hall are, and Building C, and Building D, the older worship center, and Building E, the gymnasium, and uh, the youth Sunday school area. They worked off of a plan that an architect put together. That's really what the word predestined means. It means to pre-plan. And really, there's no such thing as a plan unless it's pre, right? And that's what the Father did. I don't want you to be intimidated by this language at all. If you believe the Bible, you believe in predestination. Now, you may not believe everything everyone else is saying about it. In fact, what I want to say to you is what the Bible says about it is sufficient and enough, and I'm satisfied with that. I don't need to speculate or elaborate on what the Scripture actually says. But the word predestined is a wonderful, glorious word that is theology that can very quickly turn into doxology is what we find here in the text. So the Father pre-planned what we find in verse number 5. The word predestined can mean to come to a decision before Him. One translation translates it planned in advance. Another uh, states God already decided. In other words, what has happened in a believer's salvation was on purpose, not happenstance, with God. And there are several ways to describe this. God's planning. One is He planned in love. Now, I wonder how the kings of the earth plan. Some plan for self-glory. Some plan for self-interest. Some plan to annihilate and eliminate their enemies. Some plan in, for other reasons and other motives. This here says in verse 4 and verse 5, in love having predestined us to adoption as sons. The father planned to adopt believers as his own children in love. When God put together his plan for the earth, he did it in love. He has great love for those who will repent and believe the gospel. He's got great love for the whole world, in fact. But he did it in love. Uh, Then he planned also for a family. It says he predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. Now, the Jews may not appreciate that word, because they were uh, not, uh, uh, well, they did not have in their culture a system of adoption. But the Romans did. And so to Roman citizens, 
and those who lived in the Roman Empire, which could include some Jews, the truth is, is that they would have appreciated this word adoption. Uh, let me tell you oftentimes what would happen in adoption in the first century in the Roman world. You would have a wealthy family without children, and they would want to pass on their estate to someone, but they didn't have any children. And so often they would find a poor family that was in terrible, crushing debt, and they would offer to pay off the family's debts in order, in exchange, of adopting the oldest son in the family. And so they would work a legal arrangement, and it would be public, there would be witnesses, and they would pay off the family's debt, and that oldest son would become the child of this family, and that child would inherit the estate and the wealth of the wealthy family. Now, there are several details about this that I think are applicable to uh, us. One happens to be the freedom of adoption. Whenever the child, the oldest son, was adopted into the family, he was immediately free from all the, fa the family's debts, any past debts, present debts, and future debts as well. And so the debts were, n were not accounted to his account. If he was not adopted and his family was in debt, he was responsible upon the passing of the father as the head of the household. But when it came to adoption, he was liberated and freed from all the family's debt, including their future debt. But a second thing is, this status as adopted son was permanent. It was forever. Once the child was adopted, he was adopted forever. That is why a child of God can never be adopted by the Father in Christ and unadopted and lose his salvation. But then it was also something that elevated his status. The adopted son would have the same rights and privileges as any son in the Roman Empire. He got the full status of a son that was typical of families and sons in that day. And this is what the Father has planned for all believers who repent and place faith in Jesus Christ. So the Father planned for a family. And then he planned on a condition. It said we were predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, this adoption is enacted and legally ratified in the court of God. In order to become an adopted child of God, you must repent and place faith in Jesus Christ. This is the condition. And then he also planned a personal plan. It says he did this according to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, the father plans to expand his family by adopting those in debt to their sin simply because it makes him happy to do so. It thrills the Father to bring many into glory, many sons into glory. Now, there are a lot of things that make me happy in this earth, and Blue Bell ice cream happens to be one of them. I've had that since I was a boy. Sometime in the 80s, we let the rest of the country get it out of Texas. And so I enjoy Blue Bell ice cream. I appreciate a paycheck. That makes me happy. I appreciate my family. Ladies and gentlemen, the truth is, is that when it comes to God the Father, adopting more sons in Jesus Christ is what thrills his heart. He is eager to cancel sin. He is eager to turn sinners into sons anytime they repent and place faith in Jesus Christ. It satisfies him deeply, and it would satisfy him deeply to make you a child of God today, to erase his condemnation of your life, to cancel the debt that's against you and adopt you and elevate you to the level of one of his sons 
or his daughters. John Bunyan put it this way. He said, God had a whole heaven to himself, millions of angels to do his bidding, but these could not satisfy him. He must have sinners to share it with him. And it thrills him to do that with you. In other words, the populations of heaven and hell matter to God. And to this God, and you can't say this about all the gods of the earth, but to this God, it is better for heaven to be more populated than hell and hell to be less populated than heaven. It makes a difference to him. And he'd like for you to be a part of that. Now, this is what God does. That is to say, in order to bring you to Jesus Christ into this adoption, He has constructed a plan for your life. Not my life, that that involves some disappointments. And that involves some people. I remember my junior year in high school, the year I came to Christ, was filled with lots of disappointment, especially when it came to the sports I was playing. I remember a number of years ago, Jonathan was playing baseball. And he rounded second base, and he must have been about seven years old or so. Uh, yeah, seven or eight years old. He rounded second base, and he was supposed to stop at second base, but he rounded it and got a few feet off of it. And Matthew Ridley, who was in a second grade Sunday school class, saw him, and he had the ball at shortstop. And he hesitated, but he tagged Jonathan out. It was the first time in three years of baseball Jonathan had ever been tagged out. And Jonathan took off his helmet and pushed out his lip, ducked his head, and ran into the dugout where I was sitting as his assistant coach. And he sat next to me, and he cried out, and with his head in his face, said, Daddy, baseball breaks my heart. And the coaches and I looked at him and said, it's broken our heart many times too. (laughs) You know, you may find yourself today in a similar position with a broken heart before God. You may have failed in your plan of your storm-tossed life. And Jesus is saying, place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers through our pleasures, but he shouts in our pains. He's been whispering to you through the joy in your heart to come to Christ. But now that you're enduring some pain, it may be that he's shouting. I'm not saying that every pain and difficulty is caused by God. But I'm saying he is Lord of all and it has a design. And the first design is to bring you into full surrender to Jesus Christ. Now the people involved in my life were Sean and Laban Gisi who persistently picked me up for church when I was in the 7th and 8th grade, ninth grade, to get me to Lamore First Southern Baptist Church where I could be in Sunday school and worship. It involved a gospel preacher by the name of Gary Casey, who was a faithful pastor who fearlessly preached the gospel of Christ. It involved Jerry Knudsen, who I remember would open up the book of 1 Corinthians and just as quickly as he could get to Jesus Christ and how we need to be surrendered to him. And then involved Barbara Krause, who would teach our junior high and high school Sunday school class in that small church after having been severely persecuted and ridiculed by her atheist husband every Sunday morning that she would come to teach Sunday school for. Sometimes he would demand and insist she miss worship service, and she'd have to miss on occasion. But these are the people God put into my life because he predestined, he pre-planned to bring me to Jesus 
Christ, can I tell you something? It is hard for me to go by a month without giving thanks to God for the Geese's and for the Krauses and for the Casey's and for the Knutsons because these were the human instruments God predestined to bring me to Jesus Christ into the adoption as sons. Friends, I believe he's worthy of worship and praise. But there's a third thing that he does, and that is he qualifies believers. He qualifies believers. In our nation, we have what I and others call the BBA syndrome. That means you're valuable and significant only if you have beauty, brains, or ability. Otherwise, in our nation, oftentimes you're not very valuable or significant. That is one of the great sins of the nation, that we value people on the basis of things that they really, in many ways, can't help. All of us have different levels of intelligence, and we should expand those to the maximum ability. Of course, I know there are probably some of you that graduated magna cum laude and sum cum laude from high school and college. Some of you had to graduate laude laude, though, didn't you? <laughs> but you did the best that you can. Beauty, that's something that's given by God. Now, we should take care of ourselves, understand that. But, and, and then ability. Those kinds of things are given to us in creation. How we look and the, ability, the, the uh, expanse of our intelligence and our abilities are given to us by God in creation. It's something that you can't help. And I, I've got to tell you, the truth is, most of us will never qualify to be on the start page of anyone's news service on the Internet or the cover of a magazine. Very, very few reach that, and so there are many women and many men who do not have realistic expectations of themselves, or their spouses, or their children. The BBA syndrome, they're simply not qualified to reach the upper echelons of the BBA clique. Well, I want to tell you, with God, you do not have to worry about qualifying yourself for Him. He does it in Jesus Christ. And that's what the text says in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the beloved. By the praise of his, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the beloved. He qualified believers first by grace. He gave us what we, he gave us what we simply could not earn, what we needed, and what we do not deserve. And that's what grace means. He qualified us to inspire. Now this is a challenging, um, uh, this is a challenging insight into the Greek New Testament that's hidden from many English readers. But it says, by which, by grace, he made us accepted in the beloved. That word was used in secular Greek to indicate someone that was charming, someone that was delightful. And friends, what I want to say to you is, is that if you have come to Jesus Christ as Savior, you charm the heart of this Father. You may not have the best batting average. In fact, you may have the worst. You may not be very photogenic. In fact, you may be like me. You may crack a camera once in a while. You may not be impressive, and you may not charm others, but to this God, when you come to Jesus Christ as Savior, you charm the heart of the Father. Listen, do you ever get the idea? This God is just looking for an excuse 
to be a blessing to his people. And that's what he does. It's by grace, by his grace, that we are made accepted and charming and inspiring to him. And then he qualifies believers for Christ. And this is a large issue. By which he made us accepted in the beloved. It's in Christ, by his grace, that we're made this way. But you must understand, and I don't have time to unpack all of this this morning, but the Father insists and demands upon a clean environment for his Son where to rule. That's why outside the kingdom in the future will be excluded all sin and all evil and all of those who do not repent and place faith in Christ. God the Father demands a clean environment for His Son. You see, His Son has suffered too much already. Wounds marred the Holy One. And even in His resurrected body, Thomas was able to point out and identify Jesus by His wounds in His resurrected body. The wounds that Jesus received at the cross accompany him still. The thorns that pierced his brow wounded his brow, and he's wounded still. The nails that penetrated his hands wound him still. Those that pierced his feet are present still. He is wounded. He is wounded. And that is how he is identified. And John saw him in Revelation 13, 8 and said, He appeared as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Friend, I want to say, the Son of God has suffered enough and the Father doesn't want any more evil or moral pollution to get near his Son again. So how are you going to go meet Jesus? How will you ever ascend the hill of the Lord? How will you ever get near the throne and thank him? The Father has an answer for that. He will qualify you by grace. And instead of turning you away and seeing you in filth, He'll make you charming in Jesus Christ. So that when you approach the throne, you can come bold. Bold you can approach the throne for mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. You can approach it that way. And instead of repelling the Son of God who's been wounded, you're charming to Him when you repent and place faith in Jesus Christ. And instead of recoiling, He will think of you precious thoughts when you come to Jesus Christ. God qualifies us by His grace when we have no beauty, brains, or ability, or even if we do. And so He qualifies believers. So we can praise Him. Because before the world ever was, the Father planned to elevate you into the favor that His Son, Jesus Christ, enjoys. This got on my heart when I was younger, soon after I came to Christ. And by the time I was 19, just a few years after my conversion, I had written out a prayer list that I prayed through and concentrated on every Sunday afternoon. And I was on staff at a church then. And I remember taking that prayer list, and it was much like this. And it had myself and my future wife my future children, my future home. And I listed 10 or 15 Bible verses next to each of those categories. And I would take that prayer list and go into the fellowship hall of my church and get on that hard, cold tile floor and put my elbows in an aluminum chair or a metal chair 
and I would pour out my heart before God, asking Him to do those Bible verses in me and in my future wife and my future children and in my future home. I was 19 years old then. One young lady, a couple of years later, heard about the prayer list and came and asked me for it and copied it, and two years later, I married her. And soon after she and I were engaged in May of 1990, her mother wrote me a note and said, how does it feel to know that I have prayed for you every day for 23 years? Well, pretty good. (laughs) And that explains that by the time I got engaged to her daughter, I wasn't dead. I should have been several times over. But I would take that prayer list as a 19-year-old kid and pour out my heart before God and plead with Him to work His Word into my life, into my wife, into my children, and into my family. And He's been far more faithful than my prayers ever would. But I was 19 at the time, and eight years later, I had my first child. Well, Michelle had it, but I was there. And so, Jonathan, I want to say to you, you were on my heart eight years before you were ever born. And then Hannah Grace came a couple years later, and you were on my heart ten years before you were ever born. And Sarah Kate, you were on my heart 16 years before you were ever born. And Luke, you were on my heart 20 years before you were ever born. I envisioned you. I dreamed about you. I thought about you. I prayed for you. And many others did as well. But what I want to say to you this morning is please don't be too impressed with that because before the foundation of the world, God the Father had you on His heart. I don't mean to go Willie Nelson on you, but you've always been on his mind. (laughs) You've gripped him. And making you a child of God was such a passion and priority of his. He wounded his son at the cross for you. Raised him from the dead and now gives you the opportunity to walk every day with Him right on into His presence. How deep the Father's love for us. How deep. There was a Scottish family in Glasgow, Scotland that that was struggling with a daughter, and she became so enraged at her family that she left. And she degraded herself so badly, she sold herself. Her mother became so worried about her, of course, when she didn't return home, that she went all throughout the city and surrounding area posting flyers. And she went to rescue missions in in Glasgow and posted one that said, I love you, come home. Posted her picture there. The young lady happened by this rescue mission and saw the flyer. It was late, but quickly she went home. She was tired of her degradation and filth and sin. And she got to her home, and it was after midnight, and she tried the door, and it was, it was open, and she panicked. 
That was unusual. It should have been locked. And so she burst through the door back to her mother and father's bedroom, fearing that someone had broken into the home. And when she came in, she came in in a panic. She said, I thought someone broke in. And her mother said, no, not at all. The door has been locked since the day you left. And beloved, I want to say to you, God the Father has flung open the door. It's unlocked. It's unlocked. It's been unlocked since Jesus left glory. And he's pleading with you to grow tired of a life outside of Jesus Christ and to hurry home. He wants you. He's sacrificed. And he's calling you now to repudiate everything that keeps you from him and to trust his grace and love enough to plead with him to save and forgive. You can do that this morning. And Father, we pray that friends would do precisely that today. We pray that they would hate their sin and trust the Savior. Please give them all that they need in these moments to say yes to Jesus and to become the children of God, no longer children of wrath or disobedience, no longer children of the prince of the power of the air, but children of God. Thank you for the opportunity to say yes to him. We plead, O God, that others would bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords and surrender all to you. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And as we do, staff will be standing here in the front. And this is your opportunity to get the spiritual help that you need. We want to ask you to come. Simply say, I've got a need. Tell them what it is, and we will be glad to help you with it, whatever it may be. Maybe today you need to open up your heart to Jesus, establish a new walk with Him. You come. God may be moving your heart to become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church. We want you. You come. God may be calling you to preach this good news, to serve maybe as a missionary, or sometime some kind of vocational service. You come. But right now, I want to ask you to quickly stand with me. Let me finish my prayer. We're going to ask you to come. Bless your name, Father. Because Jesus is worthy, because you were worthy, I want to pray, O oh God, that you would gather every soul and that all would be surrendered to Jesus Christ when the final amen is said today. In his name we pray. Amen. You come.